0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So, infertility is not usually a topic discussed or even normalized in conversations, but it's a topic that we're gonna be looking into today more specifically, talking about male infertility and how it affects families in general. To assist me in this conversation and help us understand the different perspectives is Dr. Brennan Peterson, joining me on the show. Uh, to give up a bit of background, he is a professor in the Department of Marriage and Family Therapy at Chapman University, while also being a licensed marriage and family therapist. So thank you so much, Brennan, for joining me on the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Tina. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So talking about a bit of your work, a lot of your research is looking into the mental health implications when it comes to infertility. How common is, to start off with, how common is infertility in a lot of couples and families?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, There are different estimates, but some say that around 12% uh, to 16% of couples worldwide are going to be diagnosed with infertility. So anywhere between one and eight and one and six couples. So it's it's more common than you'd think. And like you said, mm-hmm. it's sometimes not discussed very often. So that's one of the reasons why sometimes it might be more hidden. Mm-hmm.
0: And when it comes to your work, you talk about infertility quite a lot in your line of work and discuss sort of the, um, practices sort of go about, when it comes to the mental health aspect, how how um, negative is it to a person's mental health when it comes to infertility?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's going to vary depending upon the length of the infertility diagnosis, the number of treatments that they do or don't go under, the amount of support they have. But in general, it's going to be very stressful and, and, and potentially very negative. Um, oftentimes because people don't expect that it will happen and they don't oftentimes have tools to know how to deal with it. And so if we think about it from a, like a life course developmental framework there, it's that that framework is kind of based in this idea that we go through certain transitions in our, in our lives. And, and if you look at it from a family perspective, and family lens, there's these normative transitions that are just widely accepted and that people kind of have ingrained into their, belief system like okay in my late 20s or so to early 30s i might get married i might have a child in my late 20s early 30s maybe mid 30s late 30s and then they have these kind of developmental milestones and what infertility does is it puts up this completely unanticipated roadblock that is just it can be devastating for people they have to look into their assumptions about what they want in their lives they have to go through this they're kind of thrust into this into this world of treatments and into this world of uncertainty that they just never planned on. So it's not uncommon to have depression, anxiety, increased stress, um, uh, changes to their social networks and their family relationships, which all really have a, a negative impact on psychological health. So so unfortunately, it is it can be very, very negative.
0: Mm-hmm. And to start off with before we sort of dive in deeper, and I love that we had this little introduction before we get started, but to to get to know you a little bit more, we love to start with a, a little icebreaker, sort of a get to know you before we get to know you as a professional.
1: Yeah, that sounds so, great.
0: Right. Yeah, so just share the first thing that sort of comes to your mind when I ask you this variety of different questions. Okay. So... To start off with, what is your favorite genre?
1: Uh, I would say uh, character-driven drama. You know, a, lot of, okay. a lot of great story that's related around, like, individuals and the challenges they have to overcome and the relationships that they're mm-hmm. in. Um, yeah, some, some uh, kind of the traditional storytelling journeys of overcoming adversity and those big sweeping themes of redemption and uh, struggle I love all those kind of stories
0: no that's really interesting because I've never heard character-driven drama as being a a genre in itself it's always um, it's always other things it's always such as a I love drama but to be descriptive and saying character driven it's it's a really interesting genre to add
1: great yeah I, I mean that's I- I really am drawn to if a story has really good character development, I'd really love that. Um you know, if a story just doesn't have that, it's just not as compelling. I mean, that's probably for everybody, I, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's something that you know but never really have the phrase in order to say. So at least we sort of know it now. Yeah. The next one is a the most recent movie that you've watched.
1: Well, I can I can give you um a couple and i can even kind of throw in my my favorite movies really that that i just really really loved um one of them would be and i, I try to watch this as often as i can and get my kids to watch with me but they, they, they really rarely will but it's uh, mm-hmm. et the extraterrestrial from um back from the 80s so it's steven mm-hmm. Spielberg movie and that came out at the same time i was like the same age as the boy Elliot in that movie in fact like the actor and I are like 7 days apart in our in oh, our wow. when we were born so it was just like I kind of felt like so close to that character and mm-hmm. um you know it's it's really family related right it's like it's it's Steven Spielberg's attempt to kind of cope with the the divorce of his parents and and how he was as a kid and trying to figure out and navigate that that type of life situation for him um,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's then... it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that one. Sorry to cut you off, but it's it's funny to mention that because um, my dad has absolutely no interest in ever seeing ET. Oh
1: really? You got to My a, you whole tell family. Him.
0: <laughs> I have been. We've been telling him for years. My whole family watch it. I think every year we watch it at least once.
1: Oh, that's and so great.
0: My dad has never seen it, and we're trying to convince him.
1: Yes, it's well, not you... working. <laughs> Tell, tell your dad that you had a, a guest on your podcast who, who really recommends it and it's uh it's just it's it's the best. It's the best one out there.
0: Hey, well hopefully he'll listen to a professional and we'll okay. see how that goes.
1: Hopefully so. Um
0: the next one is a favorite podcast of yours.
1: You know, I just started listening to one uh called Wiser Than Me by Julia Louise Dreyfus and she okay. um and it's just it's a really excellent podcast she just started it and it fills this kind of glaring gap uh where she is uh, she's 62 years old and she interviews women who are older than her and then she says that's wiser than her and she's really putting this spotlight on the wisdom of women and um especially older women where a lot of times in society that is almost that's almost like this um You know it's it's like a belief that that doesn't that doesn't even happen Older women become somewhat marginalized or invisible and she's saying hey there's all this wisdom and life experience and there's been 10 episodes in the in the first season and all of them were just really amazing so i think anyone would benefit from listening to that podcast
0: it sounds good i'm it's called wiser than me
1: wiser than me
0: okay i will have a look at that because that actually does sound really interesting to me so It's on my Google, and I'll look at it straight after the show.
1: Great.
0: So the next question is a famous role model that you have.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's probably going to be Barack Obama. Uh, I remember reading his book, The Audacity of Hope, in 2006, and um, that's just when he was kind of coming onto the scene, the national scene in America. And reading that book, it just really changed my views of so many different things about the importance of teachers and education. And there was just so many things where I just, um, thought, man, this is just kind of revolutionary, the the ideas that he has. And, um, and I've just always loved how he has presented himself, uh, to the world. I love how he interacts with people and, and I love the things he values. And yeah, if I can, if I could be like him, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled.
0: Well, it sounds really interesting. I keep hearing, I've heard Barack, I think, about three times in the past two weeks.
1: Oh, really? So (laughs) so
0: I think a lot of people really agree with you there.
1: (laughs) He's a great role model. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll definitely have to, I think I do have his book and I think it's one of my dad's favorites, but I will have to look at it a bit more now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so you tell him you'll read that book if he watches E.T.?
0: that's a good compromise <laughs> I, I can see why you are see the therapy really kicks in there <laughs> so you go now the next one is a favorite course that you've completed
1: yeah it was pretty recent I took a trauma recovery course with uh, Arielle Schwartz and she's a, a therapist here in, in America and she does uh, mind-body trauma and um, she had I did a two-day workshop with her and she also has, she's kind of consolidated her work into, a into like an audio, uh, recording on, on audible.com. And it's like a six hour, um, kind of six session, um, work for, for anyone who's gone through trauma. And so I assign it to my students, uh, in therapy, I oftentimes have clients listen to it, uh, it, it just as really highlights the, the complexity of complex trauma and the difficulty and in, in even finding the words to describe what that is. And often, and it gives uh, a lot of um, hands-on practical strategies that people can use. And uh, it's just really powerful. And so her, her course, and then that, that continual course, I mean, it's not really a course as much as she's consolidated in this six hour audio book, uh, but it's, um, it's fantastic. And so uh, coupled along with that, I did an, an EMDR, Uh, which is eye movement um, and uh, desensitization and reprocessing, which is another treatment for trauma. I did a 40-hour course on that uh, a few months ago, and that was excellent, and I've incorporating that into my therapy work. So all of that has been really great, and it's actually informed. I started teaching a class in our graduate MFT program uh, on trauma last year. So all that's been, those portions that I've completed have been in the service of trying to, integrated in the course that I'm teaching now. So I've loved all of those courses.
0: It sounds like every therapist always has that chance to sort of um, learn even more, even after studying. There's still so much more that to keep up to date with, which is really interesting always to hear from, I think, a lot of people who have experienced the same thing or have told me very similar things.
1: Yeah, it's one of the best parts of the job, honestly, of being a therapist is you're always growing and learning and it's not static, right? It's not like you have this cap where you just stop learning. So you're always learning new things, you're always getting better at providing therapy services and uh, yeah, I I love that.
0: I know, uh, it sounds really interesting. So today we're talking about infertility, most importantly talking about it um, in terms of how it affects families and even couples themselves. So before we get started, i love to know, everyone has a very different definition as to what family is and what the term family would mean. How would you describe or even define what family is to you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because it really is defined by um, societies. And um, I would say family is it's really like a group of individuals who are related by either blood marriage or adoption that have some kind of intergenerational, you know, connections over time together and a shared history, a shared past, uh, a shared future. Um, and family is is kind of a, you know, it is a very complicated definition. And and one of the courses I teach is a course to, for undergraduates on diversity and marital and family relationships. And in the very first day we talk about this definition and we talk about that there's two ways to consider defining family. There's the function of a family and then there's the form of the family. And a lot of researchers identify that some of the key functions of a family are really to kind of provide economic and practical support, um, through do pooling resources together. Um, if those, if there are those couples who want to have children, it's to provide an environment for stable child development and uh, also family provides a place where people can have a nurturing and, uh, and supportive emotional uh, support system when incorporating and, and kind of dealing with life's challenges and then the form of a family really does differ based on one society and so in the u.s are the census when they when they kind of go around and kind of count houses they have to have a very strict definition and I'll tell you what their definition is they, they define it as a group of two or more persons related by blood marriage or adoption living in the same household um so that's a good thing in some ways because it includes a lot of people but it also excludes a lot of people from family definition um such as a long-term cohabiting partners who may view themselves as family Um mm-hmm. often nice people will define incredibly close friends in their circle as family um, based on their unique relationships with them so um yeah there's a lot of i did think different ways to define family but in a sense and, and as we talk about uh infertility and assisted reproductive technologies and treatments those have really altered the definition of family as well um because for instance you can have um in you know you at, at the most complex you could have five individuals involved in the creation of a, of a, of a baby. So you could have a, a, you know, two parents who are, who are, um, the kind of the, the generators behind, um, finding an, an egg donor, finding a sperm donor. Um, they're paying for that. They're going to become the parents. They use an egg donate, they use an egg and a sperm and then they use a surrogate to carry the child. And so at the end of that, you have had five individuals and then the questions always come down well, well who were the who are the parents like is it the is it genetic and is it biological that it's the egg and the sperm donor or are they just the donor and they don't want to be the the biological father or mother and mm-hmm. the surrogate that they have rights and so all those are big questions and so sometimes it comes down to uh, kind of being adjudicated by law and you can go into the courts and they can say okay they arranged to have this because of infertility issues and so the children the child is now theirs even though that's not a gen- genetically you know had to genetic weight so there's just a mm. lot of different ways to define family and and the broadening of that definition I think is really important um, and meaningful because uh, it's really about the, the bonds that we create with with others and the amount of love that we have in those relationships that kind of bring people together through, through mm-hmm. the good times and the bad. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you think that family, the whole definition of family, holds the same position as it did sort of decades before?
1: You know, I, I do think it does. And the reason that is, is I hear a lot of times where people say, oh, the, the family is uh, kind of changing or it's, it's under attack. And uh, a lot of times I feel like that's more of a like maybe political rhetoric at least in the united states like in the 1970s and 80s that was used as a lot of kind of like this you know the values of our of our society are, are under attack and i really don't feel like that is the case i feel like if you look at say in the lgbtq plus community and the value that they place on relationships and family where you have someone who is in this traditional perspective where they say what the family is is a You know heterosexual couple with biological children living under the same household yes that's a family but that's one type of family form and that doesn't account for the majority of family relationships when you look at households across the united states so to have a more inclusive definition of family and when when people uh love their children when they um you know i think to everyone really family relationships are important. We, we yearn for them. We yearn for connection. And, um, I don't think it, it matters just on like one specific form of family. There are so many different forms when you account for death, divorce, remarriage, blended families, ARTs, you have so many different types of, of families you can that are in that form. But then it goes back to that function. What is the function to provide that emotional, Nurturing relationship for child development to provide a place where economic resources can be pooled so that people can um, provide what they need to for each other. So that's kind of my personal perspective on that.
0: Okay. And in terms of what we're talking about today, which is infertility, how does infertility affect that whole idea of creating a family?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because infertility really is that it's a medical diagnosis, but it only is really a psychological um, stressor for those who want to have a child. So there are some couples who have no interest in having a child. And so in in America, it's it's a growing demographic of child-free couples. And in those couples, they don't desire to have a child. And if they were labeled as infertile, there wouldn't be of those stresses i talked about earlier it would be something Mm -hmm. oh we didn't want a child anyhow so really the stresses related to infertility come from that desire to broaden one's family to increase the size of one's family by having a, a biological child so really it kind of stems from that desire for parenthood and in the united states we know that that is Fairly common. It's it's probably between eighty to ninety percent of people will say, at some at some level, yes, I do desire to be a parent, and so um, it's when there's that barrier that that kind of to expand the family that that it it becomes a stress. Mm -hmm.
0: And specifically, we're looking at male infertility today. How does male infertility? impact the overall experience of coping with infertility as a couple or as a family
1: yeah the, uh, male infertility oftentimes has been really minimized where infertility has traditionally been thought of as a woman's problem or a woman's issue and we know that uh, that's just not the case like the, the more studies that they've done when they've looked at prevalence really between 40 to 50 percent of infertility is accounted to and attributed to male factors globally so it's it's just as likely that you're going to have male infertility as female infertility and in some mm-hmm. instances they'll say like it's about a third male factors usually to do with like sperm count or sperm motility and a third female factors or a third a combination of the two so we know mm-hmm. that it's it's a very um prevalent diagnosis and but it's also the one that's talked about the least and i think that's a theme that we'll be discussing kind of over and over today that comes up is that male infertility is stigmatized probably even more so than female infertility but depending upon there can be some social differences among that but uh, it's not to say that female infertility is not stigmatized because it, it can be very much but there's oftentimes more social supports that are offered and women tend to be more understanding of other women who are going through infertility there's this kind of a gap between in the male infertility world right now and so as you ask about that like some of the challenges there like stigma is a is a huge one just the stigma of male infertility um and it's also how it's linked in with masculinity and kind of those social constructions of masculinity and most cultures around the world have this kind of synonymous view of virility and uh masculinity that somehow that 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 a man is really a man if he can father a child um, mm-hmm. and so that really is a uh kind of attack that right so if someone finds themselves in the in the disadvantaged position of they can't father a child because of worse burn count then all of a sudden their experience of themselves as a man is is incredibly threatened So um, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of, I think, factors that can can come up with the challenge there, I think, of male infertility, but it's, you know, going to be about half the time.
0: So especially when it comes to, I mean, we're talking about some of the common stigmas that sort of come about. And definitely, I think when talking about male infertility, it's not something that you hear often at all. It's not something that you hear. It's, you hear about a combination often enough. You hear about combination of the both of them not being able to um not not being fertile enough or not being fertile at all, but you don't hear about male specifically. Right. Why why do you think that we don't why is it do you think that we don't really hear about that at
1: all? You know, I think it has to do with the incredible amount of, of like shame that there is around male infertility and kind of that male um pride being uh not discussing it and also males um initial reluctance anyhow to discuss something like that we we know that for instance as like that there's a relationship between help seeking and um uh, men and women when they are uh having a medical issue that that in the united states that men are about two and a half times less likely than women to, to seek help. And so there's just this kind of in general that with the socialized patterns of masculinity, this idea like that men should be able to just figure it out or they don't really need to, to get help for that. Or also the idea that it's a sign of weakness that, uh, and that's just so incredibly linked with this idea of masculinity, of being strong, um, and also needing to be there for one's partner. So even in instances where it's male infertility, a lot of times it's it's silent. And there've been some studies that came out of, out of Ghana in Africa, which showed that infertility in, in the tribes that they interviewed, that infertility was, it was believed that male infertility was not possible. And so the burden would fall on the woman. And in instances where that would happen, the couple would know, and the men in that study reported feeling tremendous amounts of guilt because their wives were enduring the shame of it. And the, the relatives would say things like, oh, well, my son should have, uh, maybe needs to take a, a different wife because she can't bear him a son or bear him a child. So those are the kind of things that you see where there's these incredible stigmas about it, whether or not male infertility even exists. And then you really have a lack of public discourse about it really like there've been a lot of women say like celebrities or well-known personalities who have come forward and talked about their infertility and when someone does that I think it's really helpful it destigmatizes it right It like because stigma survives in in secret right it's like this idea they can't talk about it because there's so much shame surrounding it Mm -hmm. there there are some men who have come forward and talked about it but it's very very rare and especially when when, the, when it is talked about, it's usually it's I. There might be examples of it, but I haven't heard many where the, the man comes out and says, "Yeah, I'm experiencing infertility." It's you know, male factor infertility. It's usually mm-hmm. like, "Oh, we we can't get pregnant," and, and that's fine because another you know part. Like for twenty years, I've written about how couples, like how we can conceptualize it as a couples level stressor. So it's not just one partner, right? They they work with it together. But I think if there were more men who would talk about it in in well-known positions to destigmatize it, that would help tremendously.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: For instance, yeah, go ahead, Dina.
0: I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I think a lot of ads that I've seen when it comes to fertility clinics, a lot of them is women signing up for the clinics and um, women sort of in line in waiting rooms in the patient ward. There's not a lot of men in those ads it makes it think like there's only one side that goes through it and it doesn't really show a lot of the visualizations that men go through it as well and that's when when I was talking about it today and I was sort of doing some research on it I barely found a lot of information as to the difference in like a difference in emotional patterns the difference in sort of the experiences that they both face you hear about okay there's a lot of women going through it and you hear their experiences with their reviews on different fertility clinics, but you don't really hear the male review on male fertility clinics. And it's really interesting to sort of see that scope and see that difference as to what you're talking about, where it's like women are more likely to come forward than men are, and even admitting the fact that they are experiencing
1: it. Yeah, that's almost, that's just like our, Uh, mirroring life you know because like you said that's such a great point you see that in those advertisements and that's what happens even with male factor and fertility is males are much less likely to attend the appointments they're not even there at the offices and that's a big problem right because the partner often feels unsupported and the man feels somewhat excluded and it's not that the men are saying like oh go deal with this on your own they oftentimes just don't have a map, right they just don't know kind of how to cope with this or what to do um, and and was interesting i watched a, a, a colleague of mine who uh she and i collaborate on some studies and we're doing a study about male infertility she emailed me about a month ago and she said there's an australian tv show i want you to watch that, that addresses the issue of male infertility and it's a show called love me and it's um i just watched full seasons and um the second season addresses this issue one of the the prominent male characters is given a diagnosis of male factor infertility and they do a really nice job with that where 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 you kind of kind of you kind of go along thinking oh this is going to be you know her issue because she's saying she she's a doctor and she's like she's saying oh i'm older anyway so she's it's kind of set up for you to think that and he has a child from a prior relationship many years before so it's actually showing male factor infertility and secondary infertility which is not talked about very much at all so i think it was a great example, right? Like they really address the issue head on. And so the more things like that happen, the less stigmatizing it's gonna be, the more um, discussed it'll be, like the more brought out in the open it will be, which is gonna be a great way to um, to help with the mental health implications of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And especially what you're talking about just then, you're talking about the show and having the male being able to have one child, but not being able to have it a second time. That's something I didn't even know occurred either. So it's really interesting to see how much we just don't know and how much I think a lot of people don't want to outwardly say that this is the situation, this is the case. Um, And especially when it comes to the research that's done, that's been done a lot lot about it, you don't hear about it often enough. Like you hear about parental self-care or you're taught here about all these other things it's not something that we normalize which is very it's very interesting to me like we're hearing about it a lot and I there's so many things that even I didn't know about infertility as a whole and I've had a lot of friends had a few friends who have gone through that experience and dealt with that situation and it's it's very interesting the emotional implications that sort of come about but I only hear it from the female's perspective right and even some of the males they're just unable to really take it all in or they're taking it taking in what their partner is feeling rather than what they're feeling themselves so it's it's very interesting how it both goes on
1: yeah for sure and we know there are ways to make it more useful and and to include men more and uh I had written a chapter for a, a book on kind of facility recently with a colleague of mine. And, uh, we came up with a kind of a couple of strategies about okay, how do we, how, how do you provide men some of like a, like a roadmap, um, based upon what we know about men and help seeking and what their preferences are when interacting with healthcare providers. And we came up with what we'll call like the four eyes and this idea, like one is to invite, like if a, if a healthcare provider would say something like we know that it's easy to think of infertility as a woman's issue because so much of the treatment focuses on the woman's body, even when it's male infertility. However, we really want you to participate in the process. We want you to attend appointments and that oftentimes is really important. Uh, there was a research out of the UK, Bola Grace, who did a study where that was the main theme is that the men in the study said basically like I I didn't show up because I didn't realize I was invited. I didn't realize I could show up. So the invitation is a is a great first step. Um, and then informing them, like we know that men prefer to receive written information from their healthcare providers. So coming up with really basic, you know, pamphlets or information online that would be here's common reactions for male infertility It's, it's likely that you're going to go through some ups and downs. It's going to be a roller coaster. You may have times when you feel um, uh, a struggle between being strong for your partner and the and the, the the stresses of infertility, and how do you deal with that? And then also involving them in the process, bringing them in for joint decision making and participation. And then the last thing we came up with was intervening. Getting, if there's a point where men are really feeling stressed and um, like not being uh, uh, worried about giving them a referral to a mental health provider to say hey we've we've had some experiences some good experiences even for one or two sessions where men have gone and shared and talked about their experiences and here's a list of some people you can go see Hmm. and that's really based on there was a, a 2017 study came out of italy which was really pretty powerful which showed that Male infertility, there weren't any differences between men who had male factor infertility and men whose partner had uh, the diagnosis of infertility in their depression levels. But when they looked at male factor infertility and broke them out into two groups men who had male factor infertility and didn't share it with anyone, they didn't talk about it, and men who did share it, it was a variable called openness. Those men who were more open had less depression so it was really this kind of breakthrough moment where it wasn't we've always just thought like oh it's the it's the diagnosis because it's so stressful but this study really provided some evidence that not only is it the diagnosis it's how that is experienced and so men who were more open they would share with other people or would talk to other people they had less less depression because they were they had more social support they weren't dealing with it all on their own they weren't sequestering themselves in shame and saying like oh I can't bring this up to anyone so that's a real big um theme that we you know we want to look at in future research is the relationship we say between like masculinity and openness and coming up with strategies where men can feel like they can bring it up without them being okay now you're weak or you're less of a man or it attacks your masculinity and finding ways Mm -hmm. where you can have this supportive environment around it
0: I know that this is probably going to go a little bit off topic, but in terms of the language and the lingo that sort of comes about, when other family members are aware that the couples um, are experiencing infertility, what sort of language is best to really show support? Because I know like a lot of people, they sort of, they hate the question of, so when are you guys going to have kids? And that kind of question is like, the most demoralizing question to sort of ask. And I know it it probably comes up in a a lot of families in either cultural sense or just, you know, the whole, okay, you've got one step done, this is the next step. So what kind of language is best to really show support to couples going through infertility?
1: Yeah, I I think it requires families to kind of challenge their own assumptions and, and look within themselves about what their reactions are to the infertility mm-hmm. so just like you're saying first of all is going to be letting go of the of the need to kind of cross the boundary about like hey when are you going to have a child or when are we going to have a grandchild or kind of respecting the boundaries of of the couple and then up and beyond that it's really going to be um moving away from those old stereotypes like hey well just have you taken a vacation maybe you're working too hard maybe you're just too maybe you're just having too much stress you know kind of tabling those discussions and saying hey we don't know a lot about what this is what you know and and we don't know a lot about what you're going through help us understand what this is like for you and how can we as your family support you in this process Mm -hmm. i think if that conversation happens it's a totally different experience than that continual like pushing and the pressure and the, the kind of imposing, like let's say that I'm the family member I'm I'm imposing what I think should be on the experience of the individual. And they're probably saying, you have no idea what we're going through. So it's just, it's taking that kind of that, that humility perspective of, I don't know what this is like and Mm -hmm. I want to be of help and I care about you whatever relationship you are to me, whether you're a sibling or a child or whatever, and really letting them kind of take the lead. And what do you need? You know, how can I best help you? Can I best Mm -hmm. help you by not bringing it up? Can I best help you by being an emotional support around treatments? Um, and letting them, letting them talk about it because people do have very strong preferences about that. And. You don't want the family members being divided and one person saying, my family doesn't understand. They just say this, this, and this, and I'm in this totally different place because now they've lost a key component of the support of going through the stress of it. Now, most families, I think don't do a great job at providing this because it's, it's just so easy. It's hard for people to, to do that because they may have this very strong belief that, Oh, well, I've wanted this for forever and I'm looking forward to having a grandchild or I, uh, let's say it's my sibling and I said, oh, I, we just had our first baby and oh man, I want, I want our children to have, you know, to have a cousin where they can play together and we can share the experience together because we've always been so close. We're friends even having that. So it requires this kind of sense of people need to let go of those things for them as well and meet the person where they're at. Mm -hmm
0: how, how do you have, I mean, that's top of one of the challenges that sort of come about when going through infertility is sort of that stigma of all of those kind of topics that sort of come about when it comes to family members and they're managing their expectations or what they are looking forward to as well. What are some of the other challenges that couples face in male fertility that sort of encounter throughout their journey? towards parenthood
1: some of them can be how the two of them communicate about fertility and how they make decisions together mm-hmm. um, some of them can be how they cope with infertility and whether or not those coping strategies line up and if they feel supported or not um, sometimes the, the the impact on the relationship is is paramount so it's not uncommon where couples actually get closer in the early days of the fertility treatments because they have this unique stressor to overcome together and although it's been completely unexpected and they're finding themselves in this new terrain they would use the prior relationship to navigate that right the strength of that they say like okay look we can make it through this now in in certain instances in like a subset of couples if they'd had a challenging relationship up to that point and there's a lot of kind of maybe there was an affair early on that never got resolved or maybe there's just been a lot of conflict that they've never learned how to resolve or family relationships that have never been worked out then the infertility and that are going to it's going to be a more difficult journey because they don't have those prior strengths and skills to navigate these challenges Mm -hmm. so in instances where they where let's say that the couple has that in place they have had positive relationship up to this point they're going to have this kind of reservoir of goodwill that they can use and rely on to kind of navigate this challenge. But even Mm -hmm. over time, they're going to have continual discussions about it. They're going to have continual decisions. And even in the best relationships it can kind of erode the satisfaction because it might be, man, we've had this conversation 25 times over the past two and a half years. And I don't know if we can, do this again i don't know if we can talk about it again financially we're stressed about this it's having an impact on my health it's having an impact on work i don't know what i can do i can't go through the psychological distress anymore so that's a challenge right and like how the couples communicate so one of the things i would really say you know about male factor infertility and even female factor infertility improving the ways that couples communicate about fertility within themselves as a couple can be the difference between success and failure at the end uh, in their relationship, like how they can learn how to manage and talk about it with each other in ways that are mutually supportive. Um, And there's strategies to do that. Um, So I would say that's that's a big one. Mm.
0: And how does therapy really fit in, in sort of helping being that sort of guiding light towards couples and talking about communication, especially like how does therapy really help In terms of both of them opening up a bit more
1: yeah you know it provides i think a space where they can just talk about what's really going on having that third person in the room can be very um beneficial um sometimes in couples there's so much stress that's been accumulating that when they come in for that first session it's just this letting go and this you know, so much grief and sadness that is that is there and maybe they haven't been able to express it to the other fully because at some level although it's they want to rely on each other for support it can be that the other person is becoming a source of stress at times too they may not agree on certain uh, treatments to undergo or the time frames of it or they might not agree on things like how to tell and share information about it with other people uh, it's, that's like a, what's called like disclosure one person might be very open and wanting to disclose to everyone and using social media to talk about infertility the other person may be very private so you may have these kind of differences that already exist when they come in so having that third person there to kind of be a place where they can start to talk about some of those challenges and then someone who's trained with infertility counseling can do a, a very thorough assessment of their fertility history their relationship history And put that into context and give the couple like this greater sense of like, okay, where this fits in and then teaching them for instance, some of these communication strategies, like like looking at patterns like old, they might bring in examples of misattuned communication that happened the week before where one of them wanted to talk to the other person, but the other person was trying to talk to them in a way that was consistent with their style Mm -hmm. and what they wanted for the partner rather than what the partner really needed from them. And so one of the things that I love to teach couples is this idea of what's called like misattuned communication and empathically attuned communication. And the misattuned communication, for example, if let's just say partner, a feels this like anger and sadness, there was a failed IVF attempt and they just have this incredibly strong emotional reaction to it, which is going to happen. And let's say partner B, doesn't really want to deal with those feelings of discouragement and sadness but they want to kind of plan for the future and figure out the next steps well partner a might have might need that conversation of emotional support but partner b is providing this more of a decision-making model so what happens is partner a has that emotional invalidation and then partner b feels this rejection and discouragement because they thought they're not being helpful and so Either the couple has interpersonal distance or conflict, right? They might kind of just, if they're conflict avoidant, they might go to their separate corners and not talk about it anymore, or it might turn into a a big conflict. But at the end of the day, what's happening is you have this negative cycle and the unmet emotional needs. What you can teach couples in therapy is you walk them through how to have empathically attuned communication, which is the same situation. Partner A feels this intense sadness and anger after a failed IVF. But each person, each partner, the trick in this is each partner has to change their contribution to the cycle. So what partner A might do is identify, kind of look within themselves and provide more of a guidepost to their partner about what their needs are. So they might say something like, "Um, what I'm needing tonight in our discussion, I just need to be supported. I need you to kind of hear me out. I I don't need you to talk about next steps. That'll take care of itself. And then the partner B can actually, if they can kind of, their contribution is to learn to let go of their own method of coping. Like they may want to be like, Oh, we we just got to stay on top of this and we're going to find a way to make this work. But they change that because that's not what their partner needs. And so they try to meet their partner's needs in a consistent manner. If they can do that, partner A will really feel that sense of being helped They'll feel emotionally supported partner B feels, that they did a great job in kind of just being there for their partners. And now they feel connected in face of this joint struggle. The, the stress is still there, but there's this positive cycle of connection. Like we're in this together. There's something you can't take away the pain of that. There's no way that, that that's just going to be one of those things that they have to work through and to experience. And it's one of those hard realities of life where it's so discouraging. There's, you just cannot talk someone out of the pain resulted from a failed treatment and all those expectations so but if the partners can each change their contribution you know it might be that you that partner a wants decision making and partner b just wants to provide emotional support but they need to just change it around and say like okay well how can i help you with some decision making tonight what to make you you know to help in terms of what what you're needing so therapy Mm -hmm. and counseling can kind of help provide that by modeling that having them engage in that in session, teaching them what that is and having them use communication in ways to just bring them together more rather than make them feel like they're, they're apart.
0: Mm-hmm. And talking about, I think we're going to go into a little bit more about the societal expectations that sort of come about. When it comes to the family sort of expectations and the pressures regarding male, um, male fertility, What strategies can they employ to cope with that sort of stigma that sort of comes about? Like we're talking about from the family's perspective, the language that they can use, but how would the couple sort of navigate through those emotional roller coasters that sort of indirectly are set in by family members?
1: Yeah, well, I think the best is going to be clear communication and just having difficult conversations with family. But this is hard to do right this is the i mean people don't want to do this oftentimes to you know it's just not within our nature you know to sit down every time there's a problem and say let's work this out sometimes there's going to just be distance and there's going to be kind of trying to work it out behind the scenes but mm-hmm. if someone in the family really is kind of locked into those expectations where you know hey they they just you know they just need to do this or they need to do that to have a child and i don't understand why they're doing this and the family members really kind of Perseverating on these things they think are right, but that are really driving the other the person going like, through infertility crazy. That's just that's either going to result in a lot of conflict and um, and it's often probably will result in eventual cutoff. Where what will happen is the you know, couple going through infertility will just put up a boundary and say, I'm just not going to talk to you anymore about it. And so what happens is then you get these you get these ruptures in relationships and families. Like again, go from being in a supportive place to a place where they're on the outside. And then there's now new complaints, right? Like, oh, my son or daughter won't talk to me anymore. They're too sensitive about this issue or whatever the thing is. And, but what happens is now there's this divide. So honestly, the best ways are, the the best situations are ways to communicate that directly. Now, some people may not love it, like a a direct in-person conversation. That might be too much for them. So communicating that by, in in writing can be helpful I wouldn't recommend like a text because that's just there's just too much that can go wrong there but Mm -hmm. I had a couple I worked with once that was really having challenges with disclosing to different individuals about failed treatments because they'd already had three and it just got to be too painful to them and every time someone would ask them they'd have to go through the whole story and it was emotionally exhausting so they agreed that the, the way that they would do it was create an email together where they where they they constructed this really talked about their experience in one time and talked about what they needed from all those people in their lives to provide support. We're always asking, right? Like, how can we best support you? And oftentimes, even though people ask that, they still provide usually unhelpful suggestions and the couple going through it. It's not just unique to infertility. It can be any kind of kind of stressor that other people haven't gone through. When they start making kind of these, expert recommendations for people it's very difficult right the person feels very marginalized and they feel like very misunderstood mm-hmm. so that's how they did it and I wondered if that was going to be effective as a therapist but I said, you know I think that's great give it a give it a try they, they sent it out and they had a ton of just really positive supportive feedback from people because they were able to communicate exactly what they needed to people in a way that answered the query right like what how can we help you and If there are people who just can't do that, then it probably is time to have boundaries around those relationships during that stressful time. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not uncommon where not everyone can do that, right? Not everyone can be the supportive person. Not everyone can drop their expectations and be understanding. So I've worked with people where they've said like, look, I, you know, I've loved my sister forever, but I cannot keep talking with her because i come away from those conversations i feel terrible even when i've explained what i need how i feel it doesn't help and she just goes back to the same thing and so they put up a boundary right they say like i just can't i can't really have those conversations now and and then those relationships hopefully can get mended again in the future but sometimes there are limitations that people aren't Uh, you know not everyone can always mend and be open and. There's, you know, people are complex that way. And so um, there's ideals and then there's realities, right? So, so sometimes mm-hmm. in the in the reality of it, it can be really messy.
0: Yeah, no, I, I can definitely imagine. I can definitely see, especially when it comes to, I think family members, they have that huge sort of expectation, um, especially when other family members are able to sort of, fertile and able to sort yeah. of go through the process of having a child. And then that question gets brought up to you, Quite often, so I think boundaries are pretty. I think boundaries are very common. To talk about on on the show, we always talk yeah. about boundaries and sort of family members setting up boundaries between them and just the only way to deal with some sort of conflict that sort of comes about. Now, and,
1: um, one of the let me just add one little point in there. One of the challenges okay. with that, even though that can be really helpful in protecting the person, sometimes it it isolates them even more on the margins because let's say that they're let's say that they're in a in a society that's a very um pronatalistic society. So couples from Israel, for instance, family is just of utmost important. And oftentimes when when Jewish um men and women are interviewed who are living in Israel, they'll talk about how they feel so on the margins because family, like they cannot participate in that way. And so that's very common so in, in China for example in the kind of for male infertility in specific the male kind of family name is passed on to that male lineage and so that's this thing there's so much shame around it and so they can be oftentimes uh, men in studies from China will say I felt completely excluded from society like my my friends you know wouldn't talk to me I was uh, there was just a stigma about it um, it became, I became kind of talked about women as well. And so they might be drawing protective boundaries around their family, but then now there's really no one. So it's, it's really the struggle, right? Is, is that can be so isolating. Uh, and that's, I think what you're getting at. is like, how do you, how do we change the, the, the narrative and the culture so to speak to where it becomes one more of inclusiveness and understanding rather the sense of like, you know, difference and, kind of, um, you know, exclusion.
0: Yeah, no, I think especially when it comes to the whole idea of a timeline as well, like there's a checklist that sort of happens when you get older and sort of things that you're supposed to do as you get older. And there becomes that huge, I know a lot of my friends who just don't want to have kids as a whole, Like, that's a completely different sort of story, but still that same stigma really follows them where it's like the culture really hits in in terms of what they should be doing, they should have kids. They need to have kids, and there's a lot of a lot of my friends who are just don't don't feel the need to have kids, and there's that whole stigma against them as well, where right. it's like they're not upholding that sort of duty that they're supposed to have to their family and to um, having biological kids. Or, for instance, for me, who where I I'm looking more into adoption rather than. Um, having kids myself, there's a whole other stigma that sort of goes into. So there's everyone I think goes through that. um, The not following through with expectations that have really set on you, which add a whole other element.
1: Yeah, completely.
0: So to go into some of our practices and habits of parts of the show, what practical coping strategies would you recommend to men and their partners when dealing with the experience of infertility
1: yeah i would say i would give a couple one is uh, this communication pattern that i described earlier i would say this would be like a great practice that people can do and they can learn it they can learn this kind of like what are what what is the pattern of negative communication that draws us apart and how do we how do we end up getting there let's get that cycle understood and sometimes mm-hmm. it's really helpful to kind of like think of the cycle as like an it, right? It's this thing that occurs outside of the couple. Sometimes within couples, it always becomes about it's you or it's, you you know, me. And it's this back and forth and to externalize it to this third entity be like, mm-hmm. okay, this is negative cycle that we're getting trapped in. So that would be a, a great practice is identify the cycle, name what you're feeling when that cycle comes up, break the cycle, and then go back to this new positive attuned communication. What is it that we're each needing from the other per- partner? And how can we meet those needs in a way that leads us to feel more connected? And that's just really important um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, the, one is that the partners are gonna grow closer together in this struggle. They're gonna feel less isolated, which is so important given everything we just talked about when, and when, when other social supports go away. And mm-hmm. it also is gonna give them tools for down the road Because regardless of what happens with infertility treatments, and if they stay together, they're going to have other challenges that come up, other things they're going to need to communicate about. So if they can improve these communication patterns, it's going to be a resource for them for their whole lives. Mm
0: -hmm. And what are some of the challenges that sort of can come up when you are forced, when you're both forced to really just communicate?
1: one of the things is that kind of one partner wants to meet the other partner's needs in the way that they want to meet that need right they have a hard time flipping out of the perspective of giving them what i'm accustomed to and and trying to meet their needs from where they're at mm-hmm. and another one is really listening with the intent to understand someone else like we're just we just talk so much when we're talking with people we don't we understand each other a lot of times but we're not usually listening in that deep empathic listening perspective so it takes practice Mm -hmm. to really kind of set your agenda aside for a minute and just listen to someone in a way where Mm -hmm. you are hearing their perspective And, and in therapy I talk about it as in like watching a movie screen that that as they talk instead of it being that you're interpreting it through your own lens and you have this inner monologue ready to jump in you watch your partner's experience on this movie screen and you just observe it. And you don't make any comments about it. You don't have any opinions about it. You just observe it. And then when you're done, you kind of state back to the partner kind of what you understand about the meaning of that, the intent of that. Now they don't need to go into those bizarre kind of parodying like what you're saying is, and they do it the exact same words because no one talks like that and it always feels weird. But if they could at least communicate the meaning so it sounds like what you're saying is, and they can put it into their own language and then they can ask a, like a qualifier like, Do I, is that right? And if they're truly open to that, then the person will, keep, will clarify when needed. And I've seen it so many times with couples where when you get understanding in the room, when, 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 a, when a person truly feels understood by their partner, so many negative feelings are bypassed right there's a sense of like that is the need in a lot of ways is i need to be understood i need to be seen i need to i need I, don't, I can't be invisible in what i'm thinking or i don't want to be invalidated so if that can be a part of that relationship then that can be a real a real strength mm-hmm. one of the other challenges with that is is that sometimes it's really complicated when one of the when when the issue that they're wanting to talk about the other person is implicated in that issue Because they're not just watching the movie screen, they're watching themselves on the movie screen in ways they might not agree with, right? They're like, that's Mm -hmm. not what I intended to do or that's not what happened. But they need to be able to step out of that, right? And so it requires a lot of emotional maturity to have these kind of conversations. And that's another barrier, is that all of us are on this journey to kind of grow and to get better at these things. And none of us are equipped at the beginning to do this perfectly like I was saying mm-hmm. it's going to be messy along the way and there's going to be ups and downs but if if people can keep trying at it and just get a little bit better then they can make a lot of progress and and can really, you know, become closer which is which is the goal.
0: Mm. And I think you really do see the truth in your partner as well. Like sometimes the practicality is that both of your ideas don't align or both of your Um, the way that you see the next part, next stage of either like one wants to adopt and one doesn't like there, how there's that whole sort of view as that okay, your ideas don't align with mine. And, you know, at least, you know, early on, I guess as well, you sort of understand your partner and what their views are on other aspects of life. And sometimes you sort of see that they're also probably not the right person for you as well which would come up as a as a challenge i think in terms of you going through this process together and realizing that that's not you wouldn't handle it the same way so yeah there's that sort of function i think in sort of seeing how you both go under pressure so communicating i think is one of the best things is one of the things one of the practices that i probably talk about a lot because i feel like a lot of families don't communicate or they don't comprehend Communication, right. So they hear it and they hear it to reply, sort of like what I'm doing today, where it's like you're saying something, I'm trying to find something to reply back. But they're only doing that and they're not really hearing what each other is, is really saying. Right, right. And this brings us to our next part of the show, which is a final section and it's our open mic. It gives you a chance to talk about something that you are passionate about and would love to share with the audience. So in the last minute or so, I'd love to give you the floor and get you to share something that, and get you to talk with the audience directly.
1: Okay. Uh, One of the things, the reason I got into infertility counseling in the first place was I was in a master's program marriage and family therapy and I needed to find a topic to study that had relational implications and my mentor Karen Rosens had really just suggested you need to find something where both people are impacted so I had some friends at the time who were having some trouble having infertility they're having trouble having kids and uh, my wife recommended that I look and see if there's anything written about that so I started looking finding the articles about it and how this is really you know it's very real and there's this is a a very real issue and it's not something that you just a lot of times have people do research it's on things that don't have real world implications so i was really drawn to the fact that this is just such a important issue so for the first probably 15 years i did this research it was all about the dyadic conceptualization of how partners together impact each other in terms of particularly with their coping strategies so for instance one partner may cope with infertility stress in a way that is important for them and it's helpful for them on an individual basis but it may also have a negative impact on their partner so we began to realize that this was really a unique dynamic because so much of the coping literature would focus on uh okay are you are you coping like if you're coping through say distancing yourself from the infertility problem or you're coping by seeking social support how does that help you and how does that assist you as an individual what was looked at was how it affects your partner and what are the implications for them so what we found in general was that yes The way one copes individually has a direct impact on one's partner. So what I'd say is if if you're listening and you're experiencing infertility is being able to have conversations with each other about how you're coping with the news of infertility for whatever it is. Maybe it's the diagnosis about whether it's male factor or female factor or unexplained. Maybe you're coping with um, the stress and stigma associated with it. Uh, any of those issues, but trying to find ways in which you could open a discussion and kind of bring to the forefront how and what coping strategies you're both using. And if those are helpful at at the relational level. And so sometimes these discussions can come about where if you compromise and you, and one partner ends up changing what was thought to be helpful at the relational level, then that can be really beneficial. But sometimes, that may not be possible. The person may say, "If I give up that individual coping strategy, I feel like I may kind of drown in this issue." So, it's really important to have discussions about one: you change what can be changed, but also <laughs> okay. you accept what can't be. Or you accept what. I don't uh, know that I was looking at where be. he
0: was. Is he still there?
1: Yeah, I still here. Still I guess I can hear you, Dina. Okay. okay. Can you not hear me? Okay. So, um, yeah, I would say basically if you're having differences in your coping strategies, talk about it, talk about what the goal of that coping strategy is for you and use those communication strategies that are trying to accept and come up with ways you can accept differences between the two of you if there are, and then find ways to compromise where you can. And that's a big thing I I would do right there is just the way in which one copes. The only other thing I would suggest is that, um, I would just do two more. One is finding rituals to grieve losses. Those are really important. So infertility is related to so much loss. It might be losing a lifelong expectation of parenthood. It may be losing future goals and dreams. It may be losing social connections. It may be the losses of a failed IVF cycle. It can be the losses of a pregnancy through miscarriage. It can be a stillbirth the loss of a child. There are so many losses. So having time to process these losses, whether it's with each other or with a counselor, realizing that grief is really a process, not a, not a one-time event. And that can be really powerful if you find uh, ways to help grieve losses that can really help in the in the the journey and i think the last thing i would bring up is like practicing some kind of like contemplative practice whether it's meditation uh, whether it's journaling some kind of, of way in which one moves towards infertility stress rather than away from it it's a it's a real paradox because we oftentimes think that when we're experiencing things that are painful and that we don't want, we move away from them. We want to avoid them. And in psychological terms, that's called experiential avoidance. And we know that experiential avoidance is really at the heart of psychological distress. So in a, in a, in a way that doesn't always make sense, the more you avoid certain levels of distress, the, the more distressed you become. So it's it's a paradox, right? It's kind of like being in quicksand. Like the harder you try to get out of it, the more you sink into it. So one of the ways to to get out of that is to move towards the stress. So allowing yourself to experience some of that stress, you can do that through meditations. There's some really good infertility uh, meditations that you can do. Um, I have some that are recorded personally. You could certainly send me an email. I'm happy to send you some um, self or some guided meditations that help to move towards infertility stress to help diffuse some of the thoughts related to it, to recognize thoughts as thoughts and not absolute truths to realize that sometimes the mind puts out thoughts that aren't helpful. And so that would be another way I think can be really helpful for individuals and people is learning to relate to their infertility stress in a different way by moving towards it can actually uh, reduce that distress.
0: Well, thank you, Brennan, so much for your insights on today's podcast and even talking about male infertility in a way that really normalizes the conversation. And I'm really glad that we got to have that opportunity today. If anyone would like to get in touch with you or talk about infertility a little bit more and maybe ask some questions that I definitely have missed, is there a way that they're able to get into contact with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, email is probably best. Uh, it's b as in Brennan Peterson, P E T E R S O N at Chapman.edu. Uh, if they also just type my name into Google, my Chapman profile usually comes up, and then they can find my my uh, my email that way as well. But uh, yeah, I'd be happy to answer any questions. I'd be happy to send some meditations to people um, that might help, or any anything I can do to help. I'm I'm absolutely happy to do it. Oh,
0: well, that's great. Well, I'll definitely have. Um... email down in the description and the show notes uh below us so you can definitely find that with ease and make sure that you get to check out uh, brennan's um chapman website as well so be able to see that a little bit more um well thank you so much again brennan for joining me and for talking about this i think we definitely do need to find some way to advocate for male infertility and for infertility as a whole especially in terms of how other family members can sort of help in the process and be a bit more supportive rather than sort of a negative experience into the process.
1: Yeah, I really agree. And I and I just thank you for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you
0: well thank you so much uh thank you guys so much for listening and definitely go check out brennan or even email him with a lot of stuff that i i know i have missed trust me i know there's a lot more to the scope than there is but yeah thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you all in the next episode you've been listening to Together, the family science insights podcast produced by family science labs a division of lmsl the life management science labs More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.